okay, so then this morning specifically, we are, it's kind of a center point, like this applies to the year ahead, but we're also closing out last year. You know, we just finished reading through the book of Revelation the last two weeks. And so that is our focus on the sermon this morning is the book of Revelation. Um, and so, you know, it's a pretty simple book, not a lot to cover. This, this should be easy. Um, yeah, no, you don't believe that for a minute, do you? All right, well, why don't we pray and invite the Lord to come speak to us, to give us some wisdom and some direction as we step into this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray this morning for just that. Lord, that we would have a revelation of you, an unveiling, an appearance, got a glimpse at who you are. Lord, in all the things wrapped up in this book, there's a lot of depth and a lot of detail. There's things that are mysterious and beyond us. But God, at the core of this, you're inviting us in the midst of our present life, in the midst of all of human history, of what's happened, of what's ahead. You're inviting us in the midst of all of it to see you, to behold you. And so Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us through your word this morning? It's in your name we pray, amen. 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 Thank you, Abby. My daughter is right there with me this morning. Amen, girl. <laughs> All right, so here's the deal. There's a lot we could say about the book of Revelation. Um, I wanna talk to you about what it's really about this morning, okay? There's a lot of things in it. Many of us, when we, when we hear just the name, like the book of Revelation, we immediately think like end times, right? End times prophecy, and what does it all mean? And, you know, there's these beasts, and they have heads, and they have horns, and, you know, just there's, there's these big, huge things kind of happening, and so I guess we're supposed to just figure out and label every little detail in this book, and then we'll know what's coming, and, you know, I'm not against the folks that get really into that, I've spent large chunks of my life diving into that stuff. I'm not ignorant on those things, but I just don't believe that that's actually at its core what the book is about. I really think that what the book of Revelation is about is what it says it's about. It's about the church having a glorious view of our King Jesus in the midst of all that is happening in this world in light of what's happened already, in the midst of what we are personally facing today. What's the beast right there in front of me? What's the great tribulation that I'm going through? And yes, it speaks to what's coming. It speaks to the, the resolution of all things. And so it does look ahead in that sense. But at its core, the book is about seeing Jesus in the midst of human history, all right? That's what it's about. And so there's a time and a place for getting really in depth and really in detail and analyzing all of it and that's all fine and good, but like at the central heart of this letter, it was a letter written to a church that was in trouble. It was most likely written during Nero's reign or if not his reign shortly after and the, the Caesar after was not much better for Christians. Christians are getting persecuted. 
They're being required to worship Caesar. This is the context. Persecution, trouble. The first generation church thought they were gonna be the last generation church. Do y'all realize that? Do you know how much of, of the New Testament says things about he's coming soon, he's coming quickly? And when you think that means you're gonna see him in your lifetime, and then those you love who followed him and given their life to him, they're being killed, they're being beheaded, and you're seeing the end of your own life coming. I mean, that's, that's John. John's approaching the end of his life and he's seen many of his faithful brothers and sisters who've already gone on to be with the Lord and he's trying to leave something behind now to the second generation church and what does he say? And the God who loves his church and loves his bride said, John, you say this. You tell him this. That's the context of the book. And so as we approach this this morning, I, I really just simply want to say this. We are looking at the question of the book of Revelation. There's like one big question. And the question is, who is worthy? That's the question. And friends, I'll let the cat out of the bag. The answer is only one. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. So, Let's approach this together now this morning. I'm gonna do my best to condense some big ideas, some big concepts down to something we can, we can grab a hold of. But I will just say, the last thing I wanna do is make it smaller. <laughs> I actually think it's intentional that it feel kind of big and glorious and beyond us. And I actually think it's a little bit intentional that we don't fully grasp it all, that we're meant to kind of be in awe of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords but I, I do believe he intended for us to understand like the core message that he's sharing. And so let's look at who is worthy. So to give you some context, okay, John has kind of introduced the letter. He's let us know he's captive on this island Patmos and he's writing about something that he experienced, something that was revealed to him that he was caught up into. And he's trying to use human words to declare something heavenly and glorious. And so he's introduced us to this idea in chapter one. And then he's made it clear that despite all the imagery and all the other things going on here, that the root of this is a personal letter from Jesus to the church that he loves. And so he writes these, these series of smaller letters that were meant to be read by everyone, okay? And so that's chapters two and three, these series of letters. They're the most personal and truthfully the most practical. If you wanna know what the application is this morning, in light of everything else we're gonna talk about, go soak up chapters two and three. See what Jesus' warnings and encouragements were to us as the church. I don't think it's a coincidence that John wrote this in a way where all the churches would read each other's letters because the truth is we can be all of those different things. We can struggle with all the different things the church struggles with, all right? And so it's personal. So then as we move into chapter four, we really start getting into the, the vision that John saw. And so chapter four opens up with this glorious scene of the throne room in heaven. And so we see um, God the Father, we see God Almighty on his throne on full display and 
everyone present is just going, wow. That's my summary of chapter four. God on the throne and everyone present going, wow. And so we're going to pick up right there now, moving into chapter five. We're catching a glimpse of this throne room. And now Revelation chapter five, verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's the heavenly father, a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is, this is the backdrop. There's this, this beautiful anticipation. Here's God in heaven. He holds the answer. He holds the answer to what's coming, the explanation for what's happened and why and how will this all be resolved. Like, of all human history, like what's really going on here and what's really gonna resolve all of it. Like when, when I look at specific personal issues I face, they're in light of all the issues that are ever faced. And so there's this scroll and it holds the answers and it holds the key, it holds the solution to everything. Why are we here? What's going on? How will this be resolved? Like, here's God in heaven. Yes, this is it. And John's, like, you can almost feel his anticipation. Like, this is really cool. I'm caught up into this glorious heaven. And then there's an unanswered question. Who's worthy to open this up? Who's worthy to fix it all, to explain it all, to lay it all out, to unveil the glorious master plan of all that God is up to in the midst of his beautiful yet broken creation. Who's worthy? And John weeps because there's no one found worthy. The scroll contains the unveiling and the resolution of all things. And the question is, who is able to do that? Well, thankfully, we don't stop at verse four. In the midst of this moment of Oh no, who, who could do it? No one who's ever lived, no one in the grave, no one who's already in heaven, no one on the earth. Where's the answer? Where's the solution? Verse five, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold. Man, I hope you see how often throughout this book we see the word behold, or I looked, or I saw. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. 
there's Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who's in the line of David, a son of man, and the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to take the scroll. He's the only one who holds the meaning, the resolution, the what, the where, the why, the when, the how. He's the one worthy to hold the scroll, to bring about the unveiling of all things. He's the one. And so John now calls us to watch him work. That's what's going on in this book. Let's watch him at work. Let's watch what he's up to, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. Let's see the king on display. And so we've got three pictures here that I want us to, to check out this morning. We'll just take maybe five or 10 minutes on each of these. Three pictures of the one who is worthy, all right? Number one, he's the son of a man. He's the son of man, but he's, he's like us. He's one of us. Our God, our king, like the first surprise is that it's gotta be one of us. We made a mess of things. One of us better fix it. I mean, that's what happens at my house. Hey, look at this room. Who did this? And it gets real quiet. <laughs> no one wants to raise their hand and say, I, I'm the one that made a mess of things here. And what definitely doesn't happen is nobody wants to raise their hand and say, I'll be the one to clean it up and fix it. <laughs> All right? What happens? What gives? What broke down? One of us has to fix it. And so God in his great love for us said, I know what I'll do, what I've purposed to do all along. I'll fix it. I will align myself with you. I will come enter your world. And so that's what we've been celebrating this Christmas season is God come to earth. And what are we celebrating at Christmas? He didn't come as a, as a fully born, fully formed king riding on a white horse with a sword. How'd he come? Vulnerable. Vulnerable, just like you and me. Into this mess of a world, he came. Well, we have a picture of that. All right, we're gonna be spending some time in, off and on in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. And so let's jump in here. One of the, the kind of big, glorious pictures we get in this book is this story of the woman and the dragon and the child and a, a war in heaven. So Revelation chapter 12 now, verse one. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. What's the picture? There's a cosmic conflict. There's a conflict between the dragon and all of heaven. And his conflict involves the children of heaven. And so we've got this picture of war between the dragon and heaven and the children of heaven. And we've got this woman. It's like, okay, well, Jake, here's a great question. Like, who is this woman? <clears throat> is it Eve? You know, is it, is, it, is it the first woman and like the birth of all humanity that came after? Well, it could be Eve, right? I mean, part of understanding the book of Revelation is understanding the rest of the Bible. Like, that's what brings it to life. And so, you know, Eve was told, where was the solution going to come from? Her seed. And what would her seed do? His heel would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the dragon, of the serpent. Okay, so yeah, okay, it could be Eve. Cool. It could be Mary, right? Mary had Jesus. And man, we know Satan wanted him dead right away. I mean, that's what was happening with Herod and the wise men. He was trying to use their wisdom to figure out who this child might be so he could do what? Kill him right at birth. Well, of course, back in the garden, right away, before the rest of humanity had time to unfold, what did, what did the serpent want to do there? Kill us at the start. And so he tempts Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. So, like, is it Mary? Is it Eve? Maybe it's Israel. Maybe it's Israel giving birth to the Messiah, and then through that to the church. Because there's the offspring that follow that we'll see later. Maybe it's the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah who would come one day and giving birth to the New Testament. You know, people spend a lot of time trying to overanalyze all this. Is it one of those? Sure. Is it all of them? Yeah. The point is, there is a dragon making war with the people of God. And he wants to destroy God's anointed and he wants to destroy anyone who's committed their life to following him. Anyone who bears the image of God, that's who he's after. And so there's a war going on. Now what we do know is we know who this child is. This child is Jesus. He's King Jesus. See, the reality is he was the one before the foundation of the world who was already purposed to come like a child. He was crucified before the foundation of the world. God knew up front and he knew his moment of arrival. And so Jesus is the one, he's the child that becomes like us. And so here's the beauty. This specific child has come to bring what? Victory, order, a resolution to all things, defeat to the dragon. Freedom and final victory for us. That's why he's come, but he came like a child. He came in all of his vulnerability. So he's like us, but he's not like us. Because the son of man stands apart. And so what do we see back all the way in chapter one? John describes this first vision he sees of this son of man. 
right at the start of this letter, verses 12 through 18. Let's just take this in. He's like us, but he's not like us. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven gold lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. He's like us, but he's not like us, but he's with us. And so he lays a hand on John's shoulder and says, fear not. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. He's a man like us, but he's not like us. He's glorious. He's victorious. But he's not this distant, removed God who just stayed in heaven the whole time. He entered the fray. His, his feet are burnished like bronze, but it's, it's earned because they've been through the fire. He's walked the hard road. He's lived life on this earth. He's faced personally an attack from the dragon. He faced it as a young child, as an infant. He faced it at the start of his ministry. His ministry didn't start with some, some glorious miracle. It started with temptation in a desert by a dragon who wanted to take him out. He walked the road we walk. And so here's, here's the beauty of this, this son of man. It's back up to verse five. It highlights a little bit more of this beauty, very specifically. Chapter one, verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. See, that's, that's like his primary role as the son of man. He's the first one that's been born again out of death. But he went through death. He went through it for you and I. He's the firstborn out of death. And because of that, he's the ruler of kings on earth. He's the king here. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Every human eye will see the ultimate human, the ultimate son of man. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Friends, it cost him something to become our eternal king. It cost him entering our world, experiencing our vulnerabilities, face, facing the problems that we face, 
facing, facing death just like we do. But he emerged victorious. He's the risen king. And because of him, we have hope. And friends, that leads us into the second thing we see about Jesus here. The firstborn of the dead, the one who's freed us from our sins by his, by his blood. Because he's not just the son of man in the book of Revelation. He's the lamb who was slain. He's the lamb who was slain. See, if he relates to us in the first part of who he is, he does something for us in the second part of who he is. He provides costly mercy. He has extended mercy to us at great cost to himself. Uh, I want you to think about this room. We're gonna go back to, to chapter five and I'm gonna read verse six in just a moment. You know, we know the end of the story and Jake, you already read some of these verses so you've removed the mystery here, but listen, why don't you think about this, okay? John's having this vision. He sees the heavenly throne room. He hears the call for someone worthy to be in charge, worthy to be king, worthy to handle it all, all right? He hears that call. Then in, in the midst of, oh no, there's no one available, an elder comes along and taps on his shoulder and says, yes, there is. And how does he describe him? He says he's a lion of the tribe of Judah. In fact, he's the root of David. This is a king beyond all kings. This is a lion. He's the one that's worthy. And so John looks to see this lion, to see this conquering king. And what does he see? Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Guys, the slain lamb was the unlooked for surprise. This is, this is what's happening to John in the moment, but this is what was happening when Jesus showed up on earth. Part of the confusion of the people who were supposed to know the most is that they weren't expecting a king to ride in on a donkey. They weren't expecting for a poor guy out in the wilderness to be the king of kings. They missed all that was proclaimed about the sacrifice that was needed, the lamb that was needed the one who would be pierced for our transgressions. They missed it. But this was the great surprise of our God is that he himself would be the sacrifice. He's worthy because he gave himself to be the lamb who was slain. Friends, listen, the issue is, the reason he doesn't just show up immediately in victory is this, he's worthy of it. He could have just come in victory immediately when he showed up. You know why? Because we don't need his victory alone. We need his mercy. I mean, if you read what I read the last few weeks, if Jesus part two is all that shows up, the king of victory, we're in trouble. Because when the king shows up in victory, he sets the wrongs right. And he brings justice. And so friends, part of what makes him glorious and worthy is that he looked at us and he saw they don't need victory, they need mercy. 
If I show up as the rightful king, they fall by the sword. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to come as the lamb who was slain on their behalf. Listen, Jesus' victory without mercy means our defeat. But Jesus' seeming defeat arranged our ultimate victory. The lamb who was slain laid down his life for you and for me. He said, oh, this room you've made a huge mess of? I got it. I got it. I'll clean it up. I'll bear the brunt. I'll do it. It's on me. And so in light of this, just a couple verses down, we see ourselves. We see any in heaven who look to this victorious lamb who made a way for us. And look at how the people of God declare or describe their victory. Check this out. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for, you're the conquering king? Nope. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why can he open the scroll? Why can we sing a song of victory? Because he was slain for us. Because the Son of Man humbled himself like a lamb, willing to be led to the slaughter. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for you and me. He's worthy. Now, why is this so significant, friends? I hope you catch this right here. Revelation chapter 12, all right? Back to the war and the dragon who's raging war. Verses 10 and 11, watch this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power And the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, all right, that's the dragon, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. What's the picture here? The dragon constantly before the righteous judge in heaven is declaring, you're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. He accuses us before God in heaven. And you know what the big problem is? He's not wrong. I'm not worthy. I've blown it. I fall short. I fall short as a husband. I fall short as a father. I fall short just in and of myself, my own little life. I blow it. I make mistakes. I harm others. I'm not faithful to God. The list could go on and on. 
And who's piling onto that? The enemy, the dragon. And he's saying, not worthy, not worthy, not worthy. And many of us live under the weight of that, like we feel it. We may not realize he's saying it, but we even hear that own voice in our heads. I don't measure up, I'm not enough, I'm not worthy, I've blown it. But what defeats the voice of the accuser? Not me becoming worthy. What defeats him? The blood of the lamb. Because where the dragon says, you're not worthy, Jesus says, you're worthy to me. You're worth it to me. I count you worthy of my own death. Think about, think about what he's saying there. You are worth me dying for. I count you worthy. I'm the only one who is worthy, but I think you're worth it. And so I lay down my kingship. I lay down my authority. I lay down my rights to victory and I lay down my life for you because you're worth it. I count you worthy of giving my very life. And so by the blood of the lamb, and then what? The word of our testimony. I'm with him. That's it. That's it. I don't have it. Guys, the message of the people of God is not we're the ones that have it all together and we need to start telling other people how to get their stuff together. The message of the people of God is none of us have it all together. We are all unworthy, but thank God there is one who is. There is the perfect son of man who's come as a lamb and laid his life down for me. And the only thing that makes me worthy is his great love for me. That's it. And so my testimony is, I belong to him. I'm with the lamb. He's worthy, I'm not, so I'm with him. And that's the song of the redeemed in heaven. And that's the defeat of the dragon. The blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So that's the end of the story, right? That's that's why we just get raptured up the minute we meet this glorious lamb who's given his life for us. Friends, the reality is the war rages on. Victory has been won. It is assured. That's one of the primary messages of this book. It's already been done and it will be completed. But this book is also very honest about the pain and the difficulty and the turmoil in this world. There's plagues, there's man made plagues. There's authority figures that just push us down and keep us down and use us for their own gain. There's just the inevitabilities of this life, plagues. Like COVID-19 is inevitable. It's the kind of thing we face in this world. It's the kind of thing that's happened before. It's the kind of thing that as long as we're here in Jesus' areas, it'll happen again. Sickness, illness, these things come and they ravage. They wreak havoc. Brings suffering, it brings death. Like the book of Revelation is honest about this. And this is happening because the war rages on. See, here's the deal. Revelation chapter 12. All right? The woman's given birth to the child. She's, she's been protected. The, child is ultimately the victor. It's by his blood. And 
our testimony is the dragon's been defeated. And so the dragon gets cast down to earth, but he's not dead yet. And the end of chapter 12 and rolling into chapter 13 begins to tell us kind of what's coming and what is. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And who's that? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right, so this this dragon has determined if I can't beat him and I can't kill him, I'm gonna make war on his people. I'm gonna make war on anyone who bears the image of God and who calls Jesus king. And so he stands on the edge of the sea and it continues. See, verse 13 isn't a new thing. This continues. Or sorry, chapter 13 isn't a new thing. So chapter 13, verse one, this dragon is standing on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard and its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was a, was a lion's mouth. And to, the dra- and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So the dragon is standing out looking at the sea of humanity and he's like, how can I make war and wreak havoc? I know a beast will emerge out of the sea of humanity and I'll give him a place of authority and power to wreak havoc. Now we can sit and analyze all day long who's the beast and who are the horns and what's with the heads and what about the second beast and what is all this? And guys, the reality is There's a beast. There was a serpent at the beginning of time. There were beasts raging on the earth, wreaking havoc, and so God came with a flood and rescued just a few. There was a beast called Pharaoh that enslaved his people, even trying to eliminate them with the death of the firstborn sons. Remember that? They're killing all the boys. And God provides a way out. A beast arises like Nebuchadnezzar of old to attack the people of God. A beast emerges like the Roman Empire, providing the very atmosphere for an act like crucifixion to exist so that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords might be crucified. That future Caesars might fight and destroy and kill those who bow the knee to Jesus. people that thought Adolf Hitler was the beast. Sure sure looked a lot like it. Who are are all these people that emerge? Which one's the beast? And is one of them the leopard and one of them the bear? See, again, we can fall into like categorizing all this stuff. Listen, there probably is a future beast that's gonna come that'll be like the ultimate last one. I'm sure of that. But guys, Humanity continues to give birth to beasts that rise up and then have a place of authority. And a second beast always comes along with them. And, and the simplest way to understand it is this. The second beast, it's like, it's the ideology. 
It's, it's the political ideology. It's the religious ideology. It's the philosophy, a, a view of looking at this world. And then there's the people that emerge to lead that. They give, it, they give it something tangible, like there's the person that leads that way, that political way, that religious way, that philosophical way. There they are. And so how does the dragon attack us? It's one of two options. He'll either get us to follow the beast or he'll try to crush us by the beast. That's it. And so the, the turmoil that we recognize around us it's different beasts emerging over time. And the whole plan is to destroy humanity. And so if he can blind us and get us wrapped up in following something which is not Christ, he'll do it. And if we won't bow the knee, then he'll do what he can to crush us. Friends, when I look at the atmosphere in our country, man, this isn't about Trump, it's not about Biden, it's not about Democrats or Republicans, progressives, conservatives. Listen, friends, like I, I think we should be aware of what's happening. I think we should vote our conscience. I think there are some options that are better than others. But friends, if we are swearing allegiance to an ideology or to a leader and investing our hopes there, like if how I'm feeling on any given morning is based on how that's going, then I'm falling for the very con the dragon is trying to play on me. Can he get me distracted? Can he get me compromising? Can he get my eyes off of the true king and onto a false temporary version that will not measure up. None of them are worthy. They all fall short. And part of why it's deceptive is because the father of lies is behind it all. And he's great at deceiving. Like it wouldn't be deception if we couldn't fall for it. It'd be obvious. And what's the best lie to tell? One wrapped up in a truth. And so people even fall for broken ways of thinking, like broken philosophies, because there's some truth in it. You know, there's, there is something that Buddha offers that sounds kind of appealing. You know, there is something that Muhammad has to say that sounds kind of right. You know, there is something, I mean, I could just go on and on and make the list, right? We fall for this stuff because there's elements of truth, but they're twisted by a lie. And then other people come along and go, well, all those religions are garbage, and so forget it all. And then we just create our own humanistic religion in its place. Our own way of thinking, our own philosophy. And that philosophy always signs off on the things I like to do and the way I like to live. Because the real beast is me. Because I will settle for something lower than his best. I will settle for being a beast instead of for being a child of the Most High God. He's worthy. And we're worth it. So hold on to the real king. Friends, this happens in church circles. We gotta watch out for the Rob Bells of the world that come along and attach a little bit of truth mixed with a lie and taint the picture of Jesus and pull us off course. There's a reason this stuff is in here. It's to warn us to be careful. 
There's a lot of beasts and it can be really distracting, but if I keep my eyes on the lamb, I'll recognize truth from error. I'll recognize other followers of the lamb. And I'll recognize the ones who aren't. Friends, all the warnings throughout the book of Revelation to us, to the church, at their core, they're basically warnings against complacency or compromise. Both involve losing sight of where our worship really belongs. The message to us as followers of Jesus is endure and worship. As we move into 2021, I think there's a real opportunity for us to just be honest with ourselves and go, Lord, do do the ups and downs of my life, do they hinge on other things? Have I attached my wagon to another beast? And do I get stuck on the roller coaster of this life because whether I've recognized it or not, my happiness, my contentment, my fulfillment is hitched to a certain way of living that this world offers financial success and security, a certain ideology. And when that ideology is winning, I'm good. And when that ideology is losing, at least I know where to fight. Do I settle for less than? Or do I recognize that the message of Revelation is, it's gonna be hard. You know, Jacob talks about the tribulation. Are we in that? Are we not in that? Do we leave before it, in the middle of it, after it? What I see in scripture is that our days on earth are going to be laced with some tribulation. The people of God are gonna struggle. Try telling martyrs of the faith that the tribulation hasn't happened. This wishful thinking that like we will escape the reality of trouble by getting raptured out, it's just a broken way of thinking. That doesn't mean we won't get raptured out prior to certain things coming about. I'm just saying we're gonna face trouble and so we're called to endure. And so you you wanna know my philosophy on when Jesus is coming back? I'm gonna live my life prepared to endure for as long as I have to while equally being ready for his return at any moment. I wanna be counted faithful. And so I want to live in such a way where Jesus, if you show up right now before in this message, man, that'd be awesome. Or if we're here for a while still and things get hard still, we'll hold on. Because the rest of the message of Revelation is this. He's the son of man. He's the slain lamb. But he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will have the final say. And so he shows up, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a donkey no more. There's a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus came as a lamb. He's going to return as a lion. And the king in all his glory will bring justice. See, the truth is there's a cry in all of us for justice. We all want that accountability. We want the wrongs made right. We just want it right up until the point where we're the one in the crosshairs. Then suddenly we're all about mercy. When the justice is gonna fall on me, I want mercy. But when it's falling on the one who's hurt me, I'm not exactly excited about the prospect of mercy for them. I want justice. See, Jesus alone is able to hold these two things together. In his great love, he is both the God of mercy and the God of justice. One without the other is wrong. All mercy and no justice is not right. And he is a God of truth and faithfulness and righteousness. But as we said earlier, when the king shows up, if there's no mercy, we're all in trouble. We think we know when, where, and to whom judgment should fall and to whom mercy should be shown. But the true king is the only one who can judge rightly. And here's the key point, he will. The king is coming and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and he will execute judgment, but it will be right judgment. I want to wrap up with this. Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. His judgment is an execution of faithful justice. And if we entrust our life to the lamb, we need not fear the lion. That's the deal. The book of life supersedes all. That book that's filled up with your struggles and your failures and your shortcomings, the hurt and wounding and injury you've caused in this earth, there's another book laid over the top of it. It says, nope, that one's mine. I've got them. Their testimony is that they've given their life to me. And so by my blood, they're forgiven, they're washed clean, and they're victorious. What's the conclusion? Guys, the battle is real. The world is raging. The dragon wants to defeat us. But victory is sure. Jesus is with us. He's given everything to rescue us and he will return in victory. Therefore, don't be surprised by the beasts that arise. They're inevitable. They will cause trouble, but they will lose. They'll lose. Don't bow to the beast. Don't fear the beast. Faithful followers of Jesus, don't compromise. Don't grow complacent. 
We're called to endurance and we're called to worship. I want to close a little bit different. I want to read the last chapter of the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to let this stand as our closing prayer. It even ends with an amen. So if you want, you can give your amen right then when it ends. If the best way for for you to hear this is to close your eyes so you're undistracted, you can do that. I didn't give the guys back there the scripture on the screen. I just want you to hear it. I want you to hear the end of the story. Take it in. Catch a vision of our king. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy behold I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done I am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come 
Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.